So why so much attention to love? Why is it um, such an important message for the church of today to hear? Why is it so important for you and for me to hear the message of love? This morning in our Sunday school class uh, of evangelism and apologetics, we talked about this. The church of America, the Western church, has lost much of its power. And we wonder why why are our churches declining? Why are they not having the influence any longer in the culture the way that we used to during the days of the Great Awakening or even during the last maybe hundred years or so, why is the church not filled to the brim, it would seem like, in a culture that is in rapid decay? And significantly, a significant part of that reason is this, is because the church has forgotten, moved away from, and stopped preaching about the transforming love of God through His Son, Jesus Christ. We've taught a lot about theology. We've given recipes on how you should live. We've insulated ourselves with all sorts of comfort. And we have moved away from the idea that the thing that really changes a person's life, the thing that can really change my life, is the love of God through Jesus Christ for me. It is the one thing that separates me from all of the rest of the world. It is the thing that separates you from all of the rest of the world is that you and I are objects of His affection. That you and I are not only the receptors, but we're also the proclaimers of this amazing love that has transformed our lives from those who were self-loathing and loathing other people into people who know truly what it means to be loved and to be able to give that love. It is the most important element of the gospel, according to the Apostle Paul, more important than our faith, more important than our theology, more important than our rhythms, more important than our music, more important than our building, more important than our Sunday school classes, more important than our events. It is the most important part of the gospel, which is the love of God through Jesus Christ for His people. And therefore, it is the most important thing that we should not hurry through. And we should dwell upon what does love look like? What does love mean? What is the Bible teaching us about the love of God for us and through us to one another and to the world? So let's try not to be impatient about the things of God, but to be enthusiastic and receptors of God Himself. I'll tell you why this is the most important thing in the Gospel. It is the one thing that separates you from those who only know about Jesus. It is the thing that keeps you and I from being pharisaical. You see, the Pharisees were very religious people. They understood the things of God. They studied the things of God. They knew their scripture forward and backwards and backwards and forwards. They knew what it was to be a religious people. They had a religious zeal. They knew what it was to work in their communities for the sake of their synagogues. They knew that, and they knew it well. Where did they fall short? Where did Jesus say they fell short? 
they felt short and they had more love for the things of God than God Himself. They had more love for the law than the giver of the law. And how was that demonstrated by Jesus? Well, in Matthew 25, we understand the demonstration that Jesus gives is this. When did we see you hungry? When did we see you in prison? When did we see you naked, Lord, and clothe you? And he said, I tell you the truth, if you've done it for the least of these, you've done it for me. Or, Lord, didn't we see you this way? Didn't we do a lot of good things in your name? Didn't we perform miracles in your name? Didn't we do all sorts of good stuff? Weren't we a religious people for your name? And Jesus says, depart from me. Why? Because I never knew you. You knew all about me. But you didn't know me. You didn't know I love you. And therefore, you could not love me. It is critical, it is crucial that the church of God is the definition of God's love to the world. Love is not proud. Therefore, love must be humble. I want to give you a truth about humility. One you can write down. Humility is the application of God's love through ourselves. Humility is the application of God's love through ourselves to those who are in the family, the church, and to those who are foreigners, the world. Humility is the application of God's love through ourselves to those who are in the family, the church, and to those who are foreigners in the world. Love is not proud. Those of you who have had the opportunity to sit with someone at their passing from this life into the next, you see the humility of life in those moments. I remember sitting at my dad's bedside as we were beginning to turn off the equipment that was keeping him alive and holding his hand as he would pass from this world into the presence of Jesus. And in those moments of silence with himself and me, I realized the humility of my dad's life and his love for me. That even while he laid there speechless, even while he laid there comatose, I had an assurity, I had a knowledge of the life that had poured his love into my life. And in that, I had a response of joy and peace in knowing that there was nothing left unsaid, nothing left undone. And that who I am is in direct correlation and response to who my dad on this earth was. And I'm free to tell you today about what a good guy and what a loving father I had on this earth. 
Well, we have a greater deathbed experience that all of us have had. It's the experience of the Son of God, who too passed, humanly speaking, from this planet into the presence of glory and took his glory upon himself. Realizing as his life was ebbing away, he was proclaiming his love for you and for me. And we realize that he came to pour that love in the humility of being naked and spread eagle on a piece of wood as the Son of God, to pour that love into you and into me for the purpose of being able to tell each other and others how great and what a good God we have. And if we ever forget that, it won't be one second later in the forgetfulness of that and the amnesia of what God has done that pride will begin to seep in and we think somehow we arrived here by our own methods and by our own works. And therefore, this is our place and not the kingdom of God. There can be no attitude more antithetical than the walk of a Christian than the walk of pride. The walk of arrogance. Flip with me over to, back over to Romans chapter 12. And let's talk about a moment, just what, what exactly does this love look like? Paul says he appeals to us as brothers and in the light of God's mercy in 12.1 to present our bodies as living sacrifices. And then skipping down to verse 9, in the context of being a living, circum, uh, a living sacrifice, it's important to understand that this is what sacrificial love looks like. In verse 9, he says this. Here's what your text says. Let love be genuine. The NIV puts it, let love be sincere. What exactly does that mean? Well, the word really translates out, don't let love be hypocritical. In other words, don't let your attitude about doing things for other people merely stop its sentiment. One of the greatest challenges in the church of today is that we are a sentimental people. We sentimentally love each other very well. We hug one another when we see each other. We give each other a little smile. We talk about it when we're out and about with our friends and we say, gosh, I really love my church. I love my people. But behold the underlying truth. I really only love the people who love me at the church. I really like the ones who agree with me a great deal. Those are the ones I tend to hang out with the most. The ones who appreciate the things I appreciate, those are the ones who I really love. That's nothing more than sentimentality. 
has nothing to do with being a living sacrifice. The love of Christ that came to sacrifice Himself for us was a love who came and loved us not because of how good we were, not that we agreed with Him, not that we felt like He was our political persuasion, or that He even enjoyed the same music that we enjoy. No, He came and died for us while we were yet sinners. He came and died for us in disagreement with Him. And He came and sought out those who would hate Him. And it was to those people who He said, I love you. I give my life for you. I walk into the darkness of this world as light and bring the light of the gospel into the lives of dark people. Don't you realize, if that had not been the sincere love of God for you and I, the gospel would have stopped at the temple in Israel. Jesus would have fit right in to the pharisaical crowd and been the great rabbi and the great king of Israel alone. But he chose to love those who differed from him. He chose to love those in disagreement with Him. He chose to love those who for centuries had denied Him and neglected Him. He chose to come and touch that which was untouchable. He came to heal those who were sick. He came to live amongst the prostitutes and the lepers. He came to wash the feet of dirty fishermen. He came to demonstrate the love of God to those who were least deserving of the love of God. He didn't come to make the temple look good. He didn't come to convince those who had followed Him for centuries that they were right. In fact, He came to say, you've been very wrong. but I love you. My love for you is not hypocritical. And here's how Jesus proved that His love was genuine. While we were yet sinners, He died for us. You see, the greatest hypocrisy of all would have been God saying, I love you, but I will not die for you. The greatest betrayal of all would have been Jesus coming to earth and saying, I am the way, I am the life, I am the truth, and you don't get any of me. How hypocritical would have been of God to say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased and you have nothing to do with him. No, but love must be sincere. Love must be genuine. Love must not have any seed of hypocrisy in it. So therefore, Christ died for you and I to demonstrate the sincerity, the lack of hypocrisy in God's love for you and I so that you and I may trust that when God says that He loves us, He truly means He loves us. And in light of that, then, we abhor, we destroy, we get away from, we eschew, we push out that which is evil. And therefore, hold fast and cling to that which is good. 
It's a great word there. If Velcro had been invented then, it would have been the word Velcro. We Velcro ourselves to that which is good. Whoever that guy or gal was that invented that thing, God bless their hearts. Is that not the most inspired invention ever? You can Velcro your pants. You can Velcro your shoes. You can Velcro your jackets. You can, I mean, it's just, it's just great. But don't you see, that's what we're to do with this genuine love of God for us, that we are to Velcro ourselves to Him. We are to rip out of our lives that which is abhorrent. What is more important than the hypocrisy of not loving? We are to rip out of our hearts our resentments, our hatefulness, our judgmentalism, our lack of zeal and passion for one another, and we are to Velcro ourselves to Christ, the ultimate of what is good, so that we might demonstrate His love without hypocrisy. Love without hypocrisy imparts genuine qualities to other people. Love without hypocrisy demonstrates genuine qualities to other people. Look at verse 12 with me. It says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek hospitality. Bless those who curse you. You see, there are qualities about a genuine love. That we bless people, we bless others. We're hospitable towards others. We're fervent in spirit. We want to serve the Lord. We rejoice. We're a rejoicing people. We're a hopeful people. There's qualities about who we are. But I want you to see there's also very practical Things that love imparts quantity as well. Look at verse 14 through 21 with me. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with one another. Beloved, never avenge. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You see, what Paul is writing to the Romans is this, that love has certain qualities about it. It has a certain character about it. It has a certain nature about it. It has a nature that looks like Jesus, but it also has real practical qualities about it. That it's not just being sentimental towards Jesus, that that's hypocrisy. It's not just giving lip service to who Jesus is and then going on and living in the culcation of selfhood. But it's the assent of knowing that Jesus and who He is has sincerely loved you so that you might practically go out and love others. Because you cannot say that you love Jesus and not serve and love other people. You can't say that you love Jesus and leave it in the pew. 
And I tell you this with emphasis, I tell you with this emotion, and I tell you this with passion, because as a pastor, I realize if you don't do this, if you don't seek practically how to serve in love, Jesus will say what? Depart from me. I never knew you. It is the most important part of the gospel to understand that loving God means loving others. The two are inseparable. And if they're not, then you only love the things of God and yourself. And nothing could be more hypocritical and proud than that. So we understand what our text says. What does our text mean? Love is volitional and emotional. When Paul writes in verse 9, Let love be genuine and poor what is evil and hold fast to that was good. Love one another with brotherly affection is a word game that he's playing there. The first part of saying love must be genuine is an intention to love. It's an agape type of love. It's a word that means that you put your heart and soul into being sincere about the things of God and loving the way God has instructed you to love. And then the second one is phileo, where we get the word Philadelphia, the city of brother and love. That we love one another, especially as brothers and sisters within the body of Christ. So to intently love God means we must also love God our brothers and sisters. That love is volitional. We intentionally do so. And it's also brotherly and practical because it works out within the context of the community of God. If our love is genuine, if our love is sincere, then our love provokes us to express that love. It compels us, as Paul would say in Corinthians again. The love of Christ compels us. Oh, how can we say that we love Jesus and be so lukewarm to service? We missed the place where Paul says, you want to know what the cure to burnout is? You want to know what the answer to wanting joy in your life is? Verse 11 and 12, Be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord and rejoice in hope. The word fervent, is be red hot boiling. Be on fire. Be passionate about what God has called you to do. Be excited. It's not everyone in the universe that gets the opportunity to serve the king. It's not everybody in the universe that God calls and says, I want you to serve a dinner. It's not everyone in the universe that God says, I want you to sing. It's not everyone in the universe that God says, I want you to teach. 
It's not everyone in the universe that God says, I want you to go pray with someone. It's only His people. It's only the special use that God puts His hand on and says, I want you to serve me to that person. What higher privilege could you have? How more red hot could you be that Jesus walks into this building today and puts his hand on your shoulders and says, I choose you to go minister to them. How excited would you be if that were the reality of your life? What if the king came to you and said, I'm going to wipe away your fatigue. I'm going to wipe away your burnout. I'm going to take every part of uh, things that are distracting you out of your life and place my hand on you and equip you and give you the joy of serving me red hot. Would you not react in a way that would be just like Jared said, dancing down the aisles? Would you care that there's chip paint somewhere? Would you care that the street isn't perfectly coming into the building? Would you care that the air's on or not on? Heck no, you wouldn't care about any of that stuff. You would be rejoicing and dancing that Jesus has touched me and asked me to serve him. Don't go to sleep. Don't get in a hurry. We'll get lunch soon. Don't miss this. This is the difference between life and death. Rejoice. How do I rejoice? Gosh, Lord, my life's hard. My life stinks. I've got all sorts of problems. I've got everything in my world coming out to me, coming against me. And I just, frankly, I don't feel like it. How do I get over that? How do I move past that? Rejoice in hope. And what hope? I have no hope. How can a Christian have no hope. Kind of sounds like a challenge there, doesn't it? Well, we all lose hope from time to time. We all sense hopelessness from time to time. But how can a Christian be in a continual state of lack of hope? And the, and the only answer to that is, is we have taken our, taken our eyes off the prize which we have already won. It means that we have translated something that is certain in our life and started to see in it only as a wish in our life. I hope that there's a paradise. I hope that Jesus is going to come through. What we're really saying is, I wish, I wish. The Bible teaches something completely different about our hope, that our hope is certain. We don't hope like the rest of the world hopes. We don't have wishes. We have a certainty for a hope that has already been fulfilled and already delivered to us. That we might take joy in that. That we might rejoice that Jesus has won the battle and will share the rewards with all of us. How can we not be joyful and hopeful in light of that? Are you burned out, Christian? Then rejoice in what is yours. Get your eye on the target. Get it off of yourself. Get it out of the mirror and put it on the cross and realize that right there on that cross for you, glory was accomplished on your behalf. You might perk up. I should probably stop.
Help me, Lord. So our text says what it says. I've told you what the text meant. How do we respond? What am I supposed to do or be? Well, I want you to look at this list of applications of 1 Corinthians 13 that I put in your bulletin for you. Look at them individually. Think about, is, is this how I'm applying the love of God in my life? Is patience my key? Am I patient with other people? Am I growing in that? Am I finding that my heart is becoming less and less critical? Am I finding that I'm, I'm not as judgmental as I used to be? I'm not as skeptical as I used to be. Am I finding that patience is winning the day with me? That I'm willing to wait upon God and see what He's doing? That I'm willing to demonstrate that patience that God has got with me to other people? To realize that none of us are home yet. That person in the pew next to you, they're just a dirty, rotten sinner like you are. And they need every bit of the cross that you need. Give them a break. They're not as smart as you. That's obvious. Go with it, Brian. Just go with it. But they are loved by God as much as you are. I want, to, I want to confess something to all of you. It took every splinter on that wood that Jesus hung on to save me. There's not one thing about me that was worthy of redemption. I know that. And you, you can be critical of me, and you can do, but you don't understand. I already know all those things about myself. I already know every area of my life that I have fallen short. I know every place where I come up wanting. And you know what? He still loves me. And that's so true about you, too. He knows every place you've fallen short. He knows everything about you that's in lack and in want. He knows every place where you've been condescending and prideful. And yet He's still humble towards you. And in His humility, He loves you. We repent back to these things. Kindness. To be the light of the world that illuminates the dark in which we live. This world needs kind people. Because it's certainly going to get it from this world. We need to gain a proper perspective about ourselves. Paul says three or four times in the, his letters, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to, but humble yourself before the Lord. Look over this list. See where you might repent. See where you might move into the application of what biblical love looks like. You may find your joy returns. You may find your energy comes back. 
And you may find that you're increasing in your joy and your hope for the things that are to come. Let's pray.